0: Well, welcome to River Bend. I'm John Velarde, I serve as one of the elders, and I wanna just take a moment to um, welcome all first-time guests. So if you're here, we have a gift for you. As you leave, uh, there's some gift bags for you, and so we're just so excited that you're here with us. Also, I just wanted to give it up for the kids that just sang, and all the people that volunteered to make this happen. I just want you to know it's a labor of love to make it this a reality. So I have the distinct privilege of um, introducing our speaker. His name is Jeff Hodges. I've known Jeff for over 20 years. Jeff is actually um, a pastor in Smyrna, Georgia, and he was our youth pastor. One of my, He was a youth pastor that I had when I was in high school. Impacted my life pretty significantly. He's been doing ministry at First Baptist Smyrna for about 33 years. And what, what I love about Jeff is I think about steadfastness. He's a steadfast friend. He's a steadfast man. Think about an oak tree as it talks about in Psalm 1, a, a, a tree that is just deeply rooted and planted. And uh, that, that's who Jeff is. And what he's going to be talking about today, he actually practices. I've seen it firsthand. Actually, I'm, I'm a recipient. My brothers are a recipient of his faithfulness to the call and to the mission that God has called him to. So would you welcome Jeff Hodges to the stage? And Jeff, I'm going to say a prayer for you real quick. Is that thank cool? You. Here we go. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing Jeff and uh, the team for Smyrna First Baptist here. Jesus, I pray that you would um, speak and work in and through him. And I pray that uh, he would just know that you go with him. So I pray, one, that you comfort his spirit, that uh, your spirit would overwhelm him, and that uh, those in the audience would come to know you more deeply, more fully, and those that don't know you would come to know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well,
1: thank you, John, for those kind words. Uh, John and Joseph and Jesse Velarde are just a number one in my book. I mean, they are so awesome. And uh, our loss in Smyrna is y'all's gain by having them up here. Uh, They have been, um, and you know this, those of you who know them, they're just encouragers. And uh, on those days when you felt like, is ministry worth it, they were the ones who would always just be there to let you know, yes, it is worth it. So I'm so excited about what they're doing here, and uh, those guys just, they, they are A, number one in my book, and it is a joy and a privilege to be here with you. Uh, last year we were able to be here um, and had such a great time, we wanted to come back, and so We're looking forward to this week serving alongside you, those of you who are able to do that. Uh, If not, please be praying for us as we go out into the community and seek to let people know uh, the good news of what Jesus is doing in this place and all around. So uh, just, we're looking forward to it. So anyway, uh, one of the greatest joys my wife and I have experienced as we have grown older so the fact that I was John and Joseph's uh, youth pastor can let you know that I have grown older quite a bit, and, um, but, but there's great joys. Those of us, those of you who have grown older like I have, uh, know that there are some things that go along with that that are some privileges. Along with the aches and pains, we get some good things. And one of the greatest privileges, uh, Jackie and I, my wife's name Jackie, we have seven grandchildren. Ranging in ages. They were like up here, but a little bit younger. Ranging in ages from seven years to nine months. Our youngest was actually born on my wife's birthday and um, Time spent with them is, is always such a blessing And recently we were in Athens, Georgia, which is uh, Where my oldest daughter lives and we were taking care of our granddaughters who lived there And it was after dinner and their parents had gone out on a date and so we were keeping the kids And so before bedtime, we decided it was a good time to have a fun game of hide hide and seek. Now, that's a great game for young children. Now, hide and seek for Leah and Abby, who were ages four and two at the time, is usually not too challenging. They tell me, granddaddy, you count, and we'll go hide. And so I'll count, and ready or not, here I come. And more times than not, they haven't even left the room. I mean, they're standing behind the curtain with their little feet hanging out, or either they're peeking behind a a chair or a sofa, not really wanting to be totally hidden. And and most of the time, I do the same when I hide. When it's my turn to hide, I'll just throw a blanket over me and just stay where I am. And it makes it easy for them. The important thing, though, is the laughter and the squeals and, and being together. But on this particular occasion, for some reason, I decided to ramp it up a bit. And to make make things more challenging, when it was my turn to hide, I left the room and went into my daughter and son-in-law's bedroom and hid behind, not not a hard place, but an open door in their closet. And uh, you could hear them, here we come, pitter-patter of little feet going all around through the downstairs, then back upstairs, then, then downstairs again, and then they would run into the, the bedroom where I was, but they would never look behind the closet door. And... Uh, every time they would get far enough away from me, I was getting a little bored, so I'd make this loud noise, you know, you know, or whatever. And, and they would come running in, but they would never look in the closet. And uh, they're never able to figure out where it's coming from. My wife Jackie was in the adjoining living room, and she began to give them encouragement to continue hunting for me in the bedroom. Keep looking in the bedroom. And each time their search comes up in, empty. So it didn't take too long before the laughter faded. And there was this quiet sense of bewilderment in the room. And even if I would make that noise, uh, they would come in. They'd never look behind the door. And then I could see them through the crack in the door. And they come walking into the room. And with a sense of resignation, Lee and Abby climbed up on their parents' bed. And then Leah looked down at Ivy, who was the calico cat who was their pet. And she said, these are her exact words, Ivy, have you seen a a boy with no hair come in here? (laughs) (laughs) And then she she looked at her two-year-old sister, and as serious as could be, she said to her, Abby, you know, maybe God, maybe... Granddaddy prayed to God, and God made him invisible. <laughs> well, I lost it. I was laughing so hard behind that door, I was doubled over. It is, it is so much fun being with them and hearing them express what their little minds are thinking. So I was thinking about that story and thinking about how often when we think about m- miraculous, you know, even though God didn't make me invisible that day and never has to my recollection, uh, He still calls us to do miracles, to do the miraculous. You know, when we think of miracles, our minds are often drawn to the sensational and hard to explain. We read of the miracles Jesus performed in the Bible when he healed the blind man, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he multiplied the loaves and the fish, and we're amazed. How cool would it have been if we could have been there when those events were taking place from the Bible, to witness those firsthand. And while we can never put God in a box, we must understand that God is still doing the miraculous and circumstances and hearts and lives that we might mistakenly dismiss. It's, it's just ordinary. It's just something that really happens. It's, it's circumstantial. And We think it's easily explained on a human level. But if we could see all that happened, we would see that that's truly a miracle that it takes place. And what I'm thinking about most of all when I say this is especially true when we consider the marvelous truth of salvation. There is nothing more miraculous and supernatural than a life that is dead in sin being made alive eternally through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Ephesians 2, we're told that our condition before Christ is what? We were dead. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, and that was our condition before Christ, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So salvation is truly a miracle, and it is impossible apart from the miraculous power of God. And the wonderful and wondrous combine when we come to realize that we have been chosen by God to participate in the miraculous, we are called by him to live in such a way that intentional missional living results in lives that are changed by the gospel. To highlight this further, I wanted us to look for a moment, this won't be our main passage, but I wanted us to consider 2 Peter, chapter 2, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at what it says there about our calling. It says that those who are in Christ were chosen, a royal priesthood, were holy in God's special possession. That's what describes us who have come to Christ. Wow. I mean, that's pretty high words. We are occupying such a high and important place in God's kingdom. And we've gone from being what we were described as one time in the Bible as objects of wrath to being so privileged in God's sight. So how are we to respond? Are we to sit back and bask in our privileged place like pudgy monarchs sitting on royal Decorative, ornate thrones. I mean, we're so privileged. Why do we have such a place of honor? Look at what it says. It says, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the miraculous has happened to us so that we might participate in the miraculous and declare his glorious gospel so that people from every nation, tribe and tongue, may be saved. And we are blessed. but Our blessing is so that we can be a blessing. Jesus set that example for us. And he modeled it, the life we're called to in his encounter with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, in Luke chapter 19. That's the passage, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to uh, Luke 19 today. And we are... Um, we're going, to, we're going to consider that um, where we see our Lord intentionally seeking out an individual for the purpose of impacting his life with the hope of the gospel. Follow along with me as I read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now while Zacchaeus was a unique person who was an actual part of human history, he represents the countless millions who are lost and alienated from God, who have no hope apart from the gospel of Jesus we see that Jesus offered three things to impact Zacchaeus here in a profound way. His presence, a relationship, and the gospel. And as a result, Zacchaeus' life was impacted in a profound way. And he gave evidence of this change through his actions. In the same way, God calls each of us who are his chosen people, his special possession, that's who we are. We're called to live in such a way that attracts people to the glories of Christ as they're called out of darkness and into light. So it is our purpose and the reason that the church exists. The reason this church exists is to call people out of darkness and into light. And as we take that calling seriously, we will experience the joy of witnessing the miraculous as people are brought from death to life and experience the power of God in their own lives. So first in this passage, we see that Jesus encountered a person who was broken and in need. Everyone out there is broken and we all have needs. But Jesus encountered this one who especially had a lot of need and he was, he was extremely broken. He might not have appeared that way to everyone, but we know that he was. Even though Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, his riches could not soothe the emptiness and pain he must have felt as a traitor and an enemy among his own people. He lived in a town called Jericho. Now Jericho is an ancient city located in a desert area just northwest of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. It is well known for being the city that was destroyed by Joshua as he led the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the promised land. About 10 years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to visit Jericho. And we were there visiting my daughter, Heidi, who was living in the Middle East at the time. And yes, near the busy main street of this historic city is a prominent sycamore tree, marking the biblical event which brought Zacchaeus and Jesus together. Sycamore trees are spreading trees like oaks, which are easily climbed, and as I viewed that tree, I imagined what it would have been like for Zacchaeus as he was perched in a place where he could have gotten a view of the the hope that his heart longed for. He was a Jew. He had a Hebrew name, Zacchaeus, but he worked for the Roman government, which oppressed Israel. The taxes that the Roman Empire levied on their Jewish subjects were harsh, cruel, and relentless. The Israelites were greatly offended by this unjust way that they were treated through taxation. So Zacchaeus as a representative of this system would have been terribly unpopular. And on top of this, most tax collectors gleaned their income by taking additional money from the people along with their taxes. So not only was Zacchaeus a wealthy man, but he had prospered at the expense of his own people. He was a despised traitor and the last person anyone would have wanted to be including uh, or anybody would have wanted to include it as a friend or a social contact. And luckily, like all who allow greed to control them and cloud their decision making, Zacchaeus was a miserable man with deep pain, which he believed no one could understand. He was trapped in a prison of his own making. And the brokenness and guilt he felt was excruciating. He obviously had heard of Jesus. He wanted to see this this man whose miracles and teaching had created such buzz and, and fanfare. And um, but, he, but Zacchaeus faced not only moral and spiritual limitations. We're told here that he also had a physical limitation. It says he was a short man, and he couldn't see over the crowd to be able to see Jesus as he was passing by. And so. This was probably just one more blow to his ego. No matter how much money he made, he could never be taller. So he ran ahead and he climbed that tree, trying to get some advantage and a good view of Jesus. As we consider these verses here that that describe the tax collector, he was a bad man in the eyes of his neighbors. He was a man who cruelly took advantage of others. He was an unjust individual with few friends. It reminds us that we never know what is truly going on in the hearts and minds of people. Whether a person seems to have it all together or maybe lives in such a way that people look at them with kind of pity or shame, we really never know what people's deepest fears and hopes are unless we get to know them. And Zacchaeus was a man created by God. And he was loved deeply by him. Little did anyone know that he might be open to repentance, to a change of heart. Only God knew that. But unless we go to the places where people are and spend time with them, even if they're different from us, we don't really get to know them. And Jesus was out among the people sharing life with them so that he might reach them. And unless we go to the lost and hurting, we will never be able to impact them with the gospel. We've begun a ministry at our church in the past year or so. It's called Pray and Go. We didn't come up with it. We didn't invent it. It was someone else, but we just kind of took it on. And on certain Saturdays, we'll have a group of people from our church who just come together, and we meet and, and, and we pray, and then we go out into neighborhoods uh, to pray and to share with others let them know that they are loved and cared for now when we do that we don't knock on doors or ring doorbells but we leave door hangers on doors letting them know that they have been prayed for today and expressing God's love for them and letting them know of our prayers for them and a few weeks into this I was walking through a neighborhood in in Smyrna where we live not far from the church and it was an ordinary day and Not a lot was happening. I was systematically just going from house to house and seeking to pray meaningful prayers. But to be honest, many times I was at a loss for words and knowledge as to really how to pray. But I would always leave that door hanger on a door expressing and conveying God's love. And as I left one front door, I came upon a man who had rushed out of the side door because he saw me going up the steps and he was afraid, I think, that I was going to ring the doorbell or knock the door because there was someone sick and asleep on the other side. And so he stopped me, and then I said, I'm sorry, sir, and I explained to him what we were doing, and, and he, he was there in the driveway smoking a cigarette and said, oh, well, thank you. I'm glad y'all are doing that. And I said, sir, would, would there be anything that we could pray for you about or I could pray for you about today? And he, he looked at me, and he said, you know, he said, I've really been pretty sad and depressed this past week. I really wish you would pray for me. So not only did I get to pray for him right there, but I was also able to share with him the good news of Jesus and salvation in him alone, and we had a wonderful conversation. And that day, at that moment, the Lord impressed upon my heart the importance of just going out and being in neighborhoods, being around people. If I had not done that, I would have never encountered this one who needed hope that day. See, we never know who God may have for us to minister to unless we make ourselves available. The presence of those who have the gospel of Christ is so needed. And the lost and hurting are all around us and they really need our presence. It's easy to kind of stay home and kind of stay behind your four walls or to stay within the four walls of a church. But while we're doing that, God can't use us the way he wants us to. We need to be out where, his, where our presence with his gospel is used. And as we move on in verses 5 through 7, uh, we see Jesus, not only his presence was there with Zacchaeus, but we see that Jesus entered into a relationship with him because of a holiness that attracts. Look at those verses again. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Well, the crowded procession began to move closer and closer, and Zacchaeus peered out from his perch, hoping to get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. But little did he know, Jesus wanted to see him. He thought he was trying to see Jesus, but Jesus wanted to see him. And when he, in fact, when he reached that tree that Zacchaeus was in, he stopped and he looked up and he called him by name. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus had found me hiding in a tree and called my name, I don't know how excited I would have been about that. (laughs) Um, Depending on how I was feeling, that day you know we get we're aware of the sin in our lives and we get this feeling sometimes that the only reason jesus wants to be with us is so that he can judge us or condemn us or or put us down because because he is so holy and we are not and with his background zacchaeus might have really had a reason to avoid jesus fearful that he might reject him just like everybody else did And this is something we need to be aware of as the church. The world around us already has a preconceived notion of how they might be treated if they were to spend time around us. Some of this reputation is undeserved, um, but sometimes our attitudes and actions can foster this reputation. 2 Peter 2, the verse that we talked about a minute ago, it tells us, of our privileged position as chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, yes, we've been made holy. But this holiness is not ours to impress people. It's ours to attract others. You see, we have received holiness only by what Jesus has done. It is by grace alone. We did not earn it, nor do we deserve it. And there is no place for pride on our part, We are made holy, not by our own efforts, but by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Sometimes our misplaced pride can come across as a holier-than-thou attitude, which repels others rather than attracts them. And it was the attitude of the Pharisees and religious leaders of that day. Look at what it says in verse 7. When Jesus uh, wanted to be with him, what did they do? They started grumbling and complaining. Um verse 7 tells us that in their mind holiness meant staying apart from the sinner instead of reaching out to him with compassion and that is a false man-centered holiness that is not the true life changing transformation brought to us from the holy spirit when we have been truly made new by the work of god alone we display a holiness that attracts and draws people to us and they can see the difference Our heart towards the lost changes when we realize how much we've been forgiven when we never deserved it. We are then free to offer this same grace through the gospel to others. Well, obviously Zacchaeus could sense this difference in Jesus because when Jesus invited him, he was immediately drawn to him. Verse 6 tells us he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly with a spirit of joy and excitement. Here was someone who truly loved him in spite of his faults and his imperfections. And he wanted that kind of love in his own life. And I believe that there are people all around us today who feel the same way that Zacchaeus did. Many of them are not interested in church because they perceive it to be an institution which condemns and judges them instead of a place where they'll be loved and cared for. And the only way they'll be able to see their error will be when they see you and me as individuals loving them. The good news we have to share is that Jesus does not condemn them, but he stands ready to heal their broken lives. In his book, Mortal Lessons, physician Richard Seltzer describes a situation where he had to perform surgery on a tumor in the face of a beautiful young woman who had been happily married for four years. He told her that he was going to have to cut the tumor out, and there was a good chance that in doing so he would cut a nerve. He said he would do everything to avoid that, but if he had to cut the nerve, the whole left side of her face would droop and be distorted for the rest of her life. Seltzer describes the scene in the hospital room after the surgery. He writes, I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth, had been severed. She will be that way from now on. I had followed with a religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to be in a world all their own, in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I asked myself, he and this wry mouth I have made who gaze and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this? She asks, yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says, it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her their kiss still works. Jesus came to us, and he allowed his body to be twisted on the cross so that our brokenness might be healed. Through him, our sin is forgiven, and we're put back in the right place. Just as he offered this new life to Zacchaeus and each of us, he sends us out to bring this good news through pursuing relationships with others for the sake of the gospel. In verses 8 through 10, we see that Jesus brings salvation, evidenced by a changed life. We read in verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus spends time with Zacchaeus, and his heart is open to the new life that is offered to him. He began the day as a man who was desperately lost, crushed by the heavy weight of sin. And guilt. Greed had consumed and controlled him so much that he was willing to live as a hated enemy of his own people. But Jesus sought him out intentionally, and as a result of the time he spent with him, this broken man found hope and forgiveness and a new life with real purpose. The impact Jesus had on his life was substantial. It is seen in the monumental change of heart in his life with regard to wealth and material possessions. He had gone from a man who was willing to compromise moralities sabotage friendships, basically do whatever was necessary to gain more money to someone who's willing to give it away to follow Jesus. And when he says that he's willing to pay back those he's cheated four times the amount, he is going way beyond the law's requirements. The Old Testament law for restitution only required returning the amount plus one-fifth. But he says, I'll give back four times the amount. Jesus declares to him that today salvation had come to him. He was saved not by his works, but by his willingness to open his heart and follow Jesus in obedience, regardless of the cost. And when Jesus calls him a son of Abraham, he means it in the truest spiritual sense. He means one who has truly believed in Jesus and put all his faith and trust in him. Jesus goes on to tell us that what has happened in Zacchaeus' life is the very reason that he came to us. He came, it says, to seek and to save those who are lost. And as followers of Jesus, as we hear these words, we should be moved to be about our master's business. As we spend time with those he calls us to, we're able to see the miraculous take place. People brought from death to life because they see and hear what Jesus has done in our lives and understand the tremendous difference he can make for them as well. This can only happen as we too are living as disciples of Jesus and are following his example of giving our presence, of seeking the lost, of building relationships, and then um, sharing that gospel with them. Many of you may have heard of J.D. Greer. He's a pastor and author. Um, In his book, Gaining by Losing, Greer states that we need a fundamental shift in how we think about the mission of the church. He uses three types of boats to illustrate the different ways church members view a church. Some see it as a cruise liner, offering all kinds of services and activities designed to make their lives and their families' life better. And for these members, the church should cater to them and their preferences, and there's little concern for those who are not on the ship. And then he says that others view the church more like a battleship. The role of the church member here is to pay the pastors and the staff of the church to uh, find the targets and fire the guns each week as they come together to watch. But there is little um, thought of their own participation in the mission. But the metaphor we should use for the mission, he says, is the aircraft carrier. The aircraft carrier equips planes to carry out the battle elsewhere. Effective churches, Greer points out, are discipleship factories and sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. In other words, if we're going to penetrate the lostness around us, we all have to take seriously the call to be equipped so that we can do the ministry that Jesus set before us as he showed us by building a gospel-centered relationship with Zacchaeus. There are so many who stand ready to hear that Jesus is real and that he offers real hope to them. More than we know, because as Jesus said in in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Until we share, we may never know how many are truly ready to respond. This fact was driven home to me a number of years ago as I was serving as a youth minister in another community, not the one where John and Joseph were, but another community in Georgia. And a girl in our youth group was dating a guy who seemed to be Mr. Everything at the high school. He was all-region in football and baseball. He was voted best-looking senior in the yearbook. He was dating the homecoming queen. Um, And she had brought him to church with her a couple of times, and I was able to meet him, although I didn't know him very well. He was pretty quiet and to himself. And, but he was an impressive young man with a long list of achievements. That is why I was taken aback one day when his girlfriend called my wife and told her that he had attempted to take his own life. He had overdosed on some pills, and they had rushed him to the hospital. Well, he fortunately recovered, and he came home. When he returned home, my wife uh, suggested that I go and visit him. And my first thoughts were, well, he probably doesn't want to see or talk to me. After all, I barely knew him. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized she was right. And I agreed, and with his address in hand, I took another youth leader with me and we drove out to visit him. And he he lived in a remote part of this rural county we were in. And we made a couple of wrong terms. I remember trying to find his house. We we couldn't find it. But finally, uh, we located it And it was on a large plot of land on a hill just sitting up there. And um, I prayed silently as I drove down this long, winding dirt path that was the driveway. And I had my doubts as to how he was going to receive our visit. But I knew we were in the right place because as we got there, there was this large window. It was getting dark and it was lit up. A large living room window and he was standing right there in the window looking out. Well, we parked and I walked up to the door uh, with my friend and he opened it before we could knock. So I, I reintroduced myself and he nodded and he invited us in and we awkwardly entered the living room and we sat down and I began by telling him that we had heard he was going through some hard times and we just wanted to see if there was any way we could help. And he looked at us a moment and then he looked down And then he looked back up and he said, you know, he said, I stayed awake all last night. I couldn't sleep. He said, so I began to pray. He said, I looked up to God and told him that I needed to be saved, but I didn't know how. And then I said to him, God, if you were there, would you please send someone to me to tell me how I could be saved? He said, when I saw you drive up, And walk up to the door, I knew God had answered my prayer. If you don't believe God does the miraculous, he really does. And there in his living room, we were able to lead this young man to trust Jesus Christ alone as his Savior. You see, God is already working in the hearts and minds of people even before we ever share with them. There are many more ready to receive him than there are those of us who are willing to share. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The miraculous happened to Zacchaeus on that day when he climbed a tree in order to see Jesus. The miraculous happened to that young athlete that evening when he called out to God in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep. Do you want to see the miraculous? Take seriously the call and example of Jesus and make it a priority to share with someone the good news of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, so many times we get caught up in life and what we think is important and we neglect the most important. We do many good things, Lord. And we forget what our real purpose is. And Father, I'm just as guilty of that as anyone. Lord, I just pray that uh, as we go through each day, that we would go through it in prayer and that we would be looking for those intentionally who need a relationship with you. Put that on our heart. Make it a priority for our lives. Lord, let us depend upon you because we truly know that you are working in ways that we cannot see and you want to do miracles through us. In Jesus' name, amen.